Hi everyone, welcome back to the Cranog. Today we are doing musical instruments, music, song, folklore that is sonorous. That was just a lot of words. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you thought you were going to see musical chairs there. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so, you know how to really spice up a 17th century ballad with murder. The tale of the Trois Sisters has been variously known across the years as the Swan Swim Say Bonnie, Minery, Binnery, the Cruel Sister, the Wind in the Rain, the Bonnie Swans and the Bonnie Bows of London. Its prolific nature hints to a history that began before Francis J. Child published it in his collection of folk songs, although there is no evidence to support this. I believe we can theorise that the song was passed from ear to ear throughout Britain and possibly from or to the mainland, with 125 different variants known in Swedish alone. There's also Polish versions, Slavic versions, any you can name. The version I'll be focusing on is the Swan Swim Say Bonnie, sang by Iona Fife, which you can and really should listen to. Um, And hopefully, Rebecca, there'll be a link to the YouTube video in the description editor extraordinaire uh enough with the history though it's time for the murder really we should rename this podcast horrible tales with rasheen plus actual education from the rest of them because i feel like i focus on murder every week so two sisters daughters of some northern lord are thrust into immediate competition by one being described as dark and one being described as fair sorry to the rest of us brunettes but i bet we can guess which princess will be the hot one Both these young women loved a man, but being a cliche, he chooses the younger, blonder daughter. The other sister is overcome with jealousy. One day, as they go down to the river to watch the boats come into port, the jealous sister pushed the beautiful blonde into the waves, knowing that the poor girl couldn't swim. The youngest begged her sister to pull her out, in return immediately dumping the man that came between them. Heartlessly, though, her sister pronounces... I'll ne'er lend you neither hand nor glove, but I will hate your in true love. I hope I pronounced any of that right. All this for a man? Despicable. Of course, the younger sister drowns, but here's where we get really grisly, as only folklore can. The younger woman's body washes up at the mill, and the miller, instead of immediately reporting the find to the ancient authorities, instead decides to be creative. He rips into her corpse, taking her breastbone... Uh, to create a harp with strings made out of her fine blonde hair. Why does he do this? It is the normal response to finding a body, right? I think we can all agree. The miller, with his fine new instrument, finds that the song it produces is absolutely heavenly, enough to melt a heart of stone, even. He travels the Lord's Hall to play his fantastic instrument for, you guessed it, the murderous brunette. As he strums, however, a mysterious song seems to emerge from the instrument. There to sit my father the king, and there to sit my mother the queen. There to sit my false sister Anne, for drunt me in all in sake a man. Such damning testimony could not be ignored. The song ends then with the hanging of the miller and the burning of Anne, and hopefully some peace for the girl who died of jealousy. In some of the other ballads I mentioned before, the miller and the sister get even more grisly fates. In others, the miller is caught while the sister gets away free, 
And in the rare happy tale, the miller drops the instrument after hearing its song and the drowned sister springs back to life. The widespread nature of the tale is intriguing. Could it possibly mean that this was a real event which gained such infamy and renown that it turned into legend? Or maybe it's one of those tales that speaks to the inherent burden of being human and dealing with feelings like jealousy, rage and greed. But, and this is key folks, not engaging in murder and human harp creation. The duality between the sisters is often echoed throughout folklore and human tale telling. Good and evil are constantly at war, yet the evil is so often presented in the choices we make instead of the, the big bad forcing us to do these things. The inclusion of a swan is another interesting detail. Swans are often linked to women, yet also signify themes of transformation due to their growth from ugly duckling to queen of birds. There are many supernatural legends associated with swans. For example, in the Irish legend, The Children of Lear, Lear marries a woman, Eve, spelled A-I-O-B-H because Gaelic makes no sense. And this comes from a woman named Rasheen. And Lear has four children. Sadly, Eve dies and Lear decides, I'm going to marry her sister, Aoife. Come on, Lear, think things through. Uh, in her jealousy, Aoife turns all of Lear's children into swans and they remain swans for 900 years. Another tale tells of Cuculain, who also kills a swan, not knowing it was transformed into a princess. A happier story features Ingus and, I'm going to say this wrong, I think it's Caer Ybormith? I don't know. The Celtic goddess of sleep and dreams, I prefer that title. He had, had to choose her from a flock of 150 transformed swans, and when he succeeded, he turns into one himself. So that's, that's a nicer story to tell. I mentioned these tales to show how important the swan motif is to Celtic legend in particular. Not only do they represent transformation, as I said earlier, but also royalty and purity. However, in ballads like that of the swan swim say Bonnie, it's interesting to note how often the swan is central but passive actor in myth. Women in mythology often have very little power, and when they do, it is directed in violence towards other women. Love is the catalyst to their actions, showing that long-held belief that a woman without man is purposeless. On the brighter side, I really adore how this myth is so timeless. Not only did it inspire countless ballads through the Dark Ages, but there are still books drawing inspiration today. Ever played The Witcher? Well, there is a quest retelling the Polish version of the ballad. Ever read A Hundred Nights of Hero or A Court of Mist and Fury? The story is referenced there too. More recently, Lucy Holland based an entire book on the story called Sister Song, and I haven't yet read it yet, but I do plan to. Was no. it a very small heart or a very big woman? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? I think you'd maybe use some of her other bones. Okay. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't think this uh, myth is about the practical nature of creating a heart from human bone. <laughs> That's the okay. next song. <laughs> this is the Miller's step-by-step -step guide. Yeah, definitely not got the kind of how it's made vibe about it. So. Yeah, it's not a wiki how entry. It's like one of those uh, <laughs> Facebook uh, DIY videos, right? Five minute craft board. Yeah, five minute craft. Oh, I see that video. 
on the swans is this why we're not allowed to eat swans and only the queen is allowed to eat swans is it because they're all transformed people it's kind of cannibalism when you think about it they're like they're supposed they've always been connected with royalty so like in celtic legends they were like messengers of the gods i think either that or they were just very closely associated with godliness so that kind of association has persisted in our minds as time has gone on and so now they are the royal animal and there are a lot a lot of myths with people being animals or animals being people and especially mm-hmm. within the spawn context like i know a good dozen or so where mm-hmm. people have either been turned into swans as an evil curse thing or turned from a swan into a person and mm-hmm. i think there must be some sort of humanity about them that people get just also on a more practical purpose probably why the rest of people don't eat them is that apparently they're not very nice apparently like fishy turkey explains why swans are always so angry if they're people that have been transformed and they just want somebody to help them god i hate swans it makes you feel better some uh some people have said for the ballad that i was just chatting about uh that it's not related to swans in their symbolic purpose but the fact that the woman's dead body floating down the stream would have looked like a swan swimming so could just be that morbid fear of swans translating to morbid tale of death does a dead body down river look particularly graceful i've never <laughs> well like so there's a it is if it's I a woman to them so i, I wouldn't know <laughs> <laughs> there's a song um that i listened to that's like basically this story it's called um it's cruel sister and um, like you were saying Rasheen, and it's got that line um so she floated like a swan but every time in my head like I just have this horrible grotesque image of this body contorted like into like a swan shape and I'm like oh a lot of these ballads were recorded in the 16th in the 17th century uh at the time where this idea of like romantic love was really high and so that's women are always elegant that's where you get like if you think the painting of Ophelia drifting in the pond like she was drowning she would mm-hmm. not have looked like that she would have been completely bloated turned blue but she's gracefully uh, floating in this pond and it kind of removes a bit of agency from women like not even in death can they be inelegant in any way like ethereal and beautiful and a standard that no actual woman is ever going to live up to mm-hmm. which makes me mad but not the killer sister <laughs> I know but that's another thing like for a man really like I, I I don't think that happens even though it does happen daily but still very elaborate EastEnders episode <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine when the harp comes back to the hall it's like I am your sister do 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 well, he did say in the story, like it played a different tune. I wonder if it was something that the family would have recognized. Well, I think it plays the, it's supposed to be playing the tune that the song is set to. So it's kind of like, you know, and then people hear this song because, of course, this happened in real life. So then people heard this song and they repeated it and they added the words of the story to her, her tale that's coming out of the heart. They've got no historical source. So it appears in almost every country in the European mainland and in some areas in Africa and in Asia. So could be really, really old tale that sprung up somewhere inspired by something could also be, you know, something like uh, Aesop's fables are pretty well known and they're from prehistory. So things that are just like 
if, there, if there's a story that's really relatable and really recognizable, I feel like it's spread so much further. Like that's why we still look at Shakespeare today because the things he wrote about were so relatable. Just a lot of people had murdered their sisters. I was yeah. going to say, I'm concerned about the use of relatable there. I mean, I don't have a sister. <laughs> well, I also have a sister. murdered my sister, but I did not make her into a harp. And that's uh, why I got away with it. I've, I've got two versions of this story in my playlist. <clears throat> One of them, I don't know, I haven't actually looked into how original either of them are. So they may have just been like versions made up by the people that sang them. One of them is Julie Fowlis and Eddie Reader, I think. It's a beautiful version because that's the wind and rain they call that one and it's like Julie Fowler sings in Gaelic and Eddie Reader does like bits in English and blah 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 blah. Um, that one is very it's, it's you know it's got the murder it's got somebody not necessarily doesn't mention the miller but it mentions somebody comes along and makes a fiddle so a fiddle out of her breastbone and fiddle pegs from her long finger bones and the, the bows from her hair and it's all and that's got the whole at the wedding at the wedding, it only plays the song The Wind and Rain, and that's the end of the song. And the other versions, Emily Smith, and that's the Twa Sisters, and it's more about the murder. There's nothing about a musical instrument at all. It's just sister, murder sister. She floats down to the Miller's dam. The Miller, all he does is takes off her wedding ring because he just robs her and pushes her back in. And then he's hung, and his sister did the murdering, is wrapped up in lead and boiled to death. So I did find that one. Cool. Yeah. So I am going to look at the, well, poem, portrait, song um, inspired by the story of the mermaid of Galloway. Um, So this story was actually brought to my attention by Graham on the podcast because up until this point, I'm pretty sure I was going to just chat about bagpipes. Um, so you've <laughs> he has saved the day. Because I thought, what instruments, you know, can I kind of think of and associate with Scotland? Obviously, bagpipes. Rasheen, you took the kind of other obvious one, which is the harp, which just you see it everywhere and so much like stained glass and paintings and so on. So this one's a little bit different because the actual story is a song. So the story is of a young man and his bride. And so he, uh, it takes place in Dumfries at the River Nith. Um, And it's roughly sort of written, it's said to be around sort of 1810 uh, is the year that we're sort of thinking. And it tells a story of two people right before their wedding day. Um, The bride being very sensible, goes to bed nice and early. Uh, the groom, he decides to go for a walk along the riverbank and he hears this amazing sound, this beautiful voice. And um, what he doesn't know is that it's a mermaid. And any other stories of mermaids that you might have heard, they never end well. No spoilers, but this story unfortunately also doesn't end well for poor William, uh, who is the groom in the story. So he, even though he knows that he's about to get married, he hears this wonderful voice and he's just so drawn to it. It's like a siren to him. He just needs to go and find out who is singing so beautifully on the riverbank. Uh, and he comes across this mermaid who just sitting there doing her hair, sort of just looking very, very beautiful 
on the side of the river. Again, blonde hair, much like in Rasheen's tale. Um, long, beautiful hair. And she just carries on singing. And as the tales that have been told over the years, mermaids are to be avoided. Um, a lot of the time they are quite demonic in nature and also want to hurt the people that they're trying to sort of entrance. Um, and in this case, uh, she does exactly that. She kind of lures him over to the river um, and he keeps sort of wanting to be with her and he sort of in his head, I suppose, wants to marry her instead of his actual bride. Um, and she sort of starts singing to him um, and slowly drowns him. And as part of the spell, he sort of hears some of the taunts that she's making um, towards his bride-to-be, and he sort of snaps out of the spell at that point, um, but it is too late. Um, she sort of realises that he's about to sort of wake up um, and just very quickly just submerges him and drowns him. The bride, on the other hand, has no idea what's going on. Um, she's tucked up in bed. She's actually following a different tradition that I'd never heard of until this story of placing a bride cake under your pillow. Um, so the tradition would be that um, you would take cake from somebody else's wedding and you'd put it under your pillow um, to help you dream of your own wedding day and your own future with your husband. Um, so she's kind of following that tradition uh, really interestingly. Um, and she does, well, kind of leaves it a little bit ambiguous. She, in her sleep, she does hear and he, she feels William's hand on her and it's very cold and she sort of asks him you know in in the lyrics she's sort of saying like you know why why is your hand so cold um and it's sort of ambiguous whether she's fulfilling that dream of her husband and seeing his presence or whether he's actually there as a ghost having sort of come back to her for one final time um to sort of say goodbye because of his untimely death um due to the mermaid spell um, so it is a very, very morbid tale. And there's very many of these about mermaids and kind of, always, it's always a young man. Um, and I suppose in a way it's a symbol of, you know, anybody can be, anybody's mind can be affected no matter how strong you are and how healthy you think you are. There's always something that can take you off path one way or another, um, whether it's your emotions or something physical that kind of just knocks you out. Um, and I think some of these tales do maybe have that message of, you know, don't always follow your emotions. Uh, think with your head a little bit, like when he sort of sprung free when he heard all these horrible things the mermaid was saying about his bride. Think with your head and just kind of break out of it. Um, but something else I found really interesting about this tale is that obviously the works that inspired in art, um, they commissioned an artist to depict a mermaid with a kind of fallen soldier. And the artist's name was also William. Uh, it was a William Hilton um, in sort of 1839-ish, um, painted this wonderful painting of uh, exactly depicting this story of this kind of young man who's sort of draped over the side of, well, actually it's, he's on her legs sort or of falling into the water. Uh, and it's all kind of very stormy weather um, and really, kind of dark imagery there and she's just sort of very very beautiful stands out in every other way in the painting um and she's sort of trying to cast a spell on him kind of hands in the air sort of doing a spell um but yeah that's um very very interesting that 
mermaids can just never be the good one. Fairies we've seen can be the good guys. Mermaids, sadly never. So that is the story of the Mermaid of Galloway. I'd never heard that one. I mean, I'm from Dumfries, so yeah. that's fun. I reckon... Have you been on that river? Is there, uh, is there a castle nearby? I think it's meant to be in the castle that's now kind of ruined. Probably. It's, it's a very like long river. It does run through a lot of Dumfries and Galloway, so it's... Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it also runs through the middle of Dumfries as well. It's the one that floods every year and floods the entire lower part of the town, so that must be the mermaid at work again. Uh, the mermaid at it, absolutely. Yeah. If you see any blondes in Dumfries, run. It's uh, at the time of the new moon. That's when you need to watch out. New moon. And they even said that if, if you so much as hear it, because even like other creatures are quite attracted to the sound and they'll sort of go and find the source of the sound and loads of birds will kind of gather. Nobody that hears it or interacts with the mermaid physically in any kind of way um, survives the night is the, the legend. There's a theory that the idea of mermaids came from this like phenomenon where you're in a ship at night and it's like so dark and there's apparently you know how you get like the call of the void when you're up on a high thing and like your head's like jump and you're like no um you get a similar thing uh out at sea um where you look down at the water and it just like calls to you and you just feel compelled to jump into it and apparently that was a thing that happened to a lot of people oh my god yeah i've never heard of that terrifying (laughs) i've never like if i see water i'd like take three steps back (laughs) (laughs) now mermaids are getting thoughts have been coming all along since the beginning of time caveman looking at a big chasm and going jump (laughs) (laughs) see i had a slightly more cynical look at the the story than that what was that man on his wedding wedding night drank a bit much falls into the nest daughter embarrassed by the fact her husband's got hammered and fought to the death and drowned himself and not wanting to tell her dad that he's having to pay for a massive wedding with no groom, says he's been taken by a mermaid. And, and nobody can come and complain about that. You just feel bad for the boy. Could so. also be a sexual metaphor and saying, you know, this mermaid is some kind of mistress that seduced him. Yeah, because, of course, know. it's never the man's fault. It's yeah. the woman with her sexual wiles. Exactly. Yes. That's a point I've been trying to get across for years. <laughs> <laughs> It's those blonde mermaids, I swear. I just Yeah, listen, it's the blondes. It's always the blondes. Well, I did read something that was talking about the Selkie being the Scottish version of a mermaid, even though there are there are mermaids, as we've just discovered in Scottish folklore. I wonder but the Selkie for some reason is a lot more like while they can be very destructive, they are have more of a role of like helping compared to a mermaid, which I find quite interesting. So like there are tales of a selkie which delivers a lost sailor back to shore or the one where um, the selkie marries the sailor and she does escape in the end, but she doesn't kill him or his children, which is a very kind thing to do, I think, for a folklore creature. I wonder if the mermaids come more from Irish mythology, maybe, than if mm. it's like towards a couple I've heard are like down the southwest area, like Galloway and the Neff and everything, which is heavily influenced from Irish mythology and folklore and a lot of the ones like if you look you look at some of the ones especially along the very southwest coast they actually match some of the ones up in Ireland so there's one to do with Heather Ale and that matches up with a story that's almost exactly the same over there but with slightly mm. different characters in it so I don't right. know because when you do that's move up idea. it seems to be Selkies are kind of islands and islands and 
you don't I've not yeah. seen as many mermaid, mermaids up there Graham any <laughs> mermaids you know up that way there's the mermaid of Dunnet Head okay she trapped I mean this is just going to become a mermaid uh, episode she, <laughs> she like rescued some sailor or something like that they ended up having a relationship and she brought him like trinkets as like a, I found all these things in shipwrecks here have a thing and he then passed them on to women around the village as a gift to win favour and basically the mermaid found out about it and his meetings with her started getting less and less and less and eventually she was like right I'm sick of this so she got him there she said do you want to see where I keep all this stuff and he's like absolutely I do this is the jackpot so she takes him round to this cave near Dunnet Head and there she chains him up with this magical chain and basically he's stuck with this thing of gold and treasure and jewels that he always wanted but he can only walk to like the cave's mouth they can't mm. get any further so you can see people but he's trapped there some say he's still trapped mm. but anyway I mean still Justified. doesn't have a happy ending although the guy <laughs> does come across as a Bit of his own fault. <laughs> yeah. Bit of a tool. Yeah. Very uh, Sisyphus. That's interesting. Yeah. But I, I, don't think, I don't know any mermaid stories that have a happy ending off the top of my head. There's another one to do with the song, but I can't remember where it is. And it's about um, mermaid who's sitting on a rock and singing and keeps this woman's baby awake because it doesn't stop singing all night. I don't like telling this story because the woman then orders the mermaid's rock to be smashed to pieces. I know this one, yeah. And I think we did. I think it was a campfire tale, actually. Um, and then the mermaid comes back, sees her rocks smashed and screams so loud that um, she knocks the cradle over and the baby dies, which is why I don't oh, like telling this story. Because it's a horrific, probably the worst ending of any story I know. Um, but again, all to do with singing and yeah, horrific endings. Wow, love folklore. Of the hundreds <laughs> and thousands of tales, there's like four with a happy ending. This story is about some creatures that people might not be familiar with unless they're from the Northern Isles. So these are the trows. They're somewhere between a fairy and a troll, sort of small and grubby. They live inside hills under the ground. I suppose they're, they're kind of similar to brownies, but they live like fairies, if that makes any sense. So anyway, one dark evening up in Shetland, a fisherman was heading home with his basket full to the brim with the day's catch. And he made his journey almost every day, but as he passed an infamous trow hill, Something didn't seem right. It was the most fantastic music. It was coming from somewhere in the darkness. And even though he was exhausted, he was a fiddler himself, so curiosity got the better of him. The fisherman crept around the edge of some rocks, and there it was. A shining light coming from a crack in the hill. And even more incredibly, you could see a host of trows dancing away inside. So... Captivated by the sight, the man forgot all about heading home to feed his hungry family. Instead, he clambers inside a trow hill and picks up a spare fiddle. So his music was intoxicating. The faster he played, the faster the trows danced. And after what seemed like a couple hours of good fun, 
celebration finally came to an end. As a fisherman climbed back out into the open air, he considered himself pretty lucky to have danced with the trous and lived to tell the tale, because not everybody did. He'd even gained a fiddle from his escapade so he could prove to everybody back home what's happened. In the path he took back to his cottage, every day, it seemed a bit strange. For some reason it was like well-packed gravel now, but it had only been a dirt track that morning. The closer he looked at everything on his walk home, the more things he noticed that were out of place. And then again, maybe he was just tired, it was his mind playing tricks. But all thoughts of a tired mind disappeared when a fisherman opened his front door. It wasn't his family inside, but a group of people he'd never seen before. The folks sitting around the fire stared back, equally surprised. This strange man had just burst into their home, waving a fiddle and screaming questions about his wife and kids. And then the oldest member of the group, he calmed everything down and he asked the intruder what his name was. And when the reply came, he nodded and he explained, yeah, there was a man by that name, he lived in this house, but he vanished without a trace about a hundred years ago. Realisation dawned on the fisherman. The trous had tricked him into playing music for decades rather than hours. Distraught at the thought of living in a world without his family, he walked outside, he lifted his fiddle, and he played one last slow lament. Just as he finished the final note, the fisherman's body crumbled into dust. Oof, very spooky. Yeah. It is. It's why you shouldn't go climbing into random hills in the middle of the night, no matter how good the music is or how good the party seems. Yeah. That one's actually worse than, um, what's the one we've done it where uh, it's one where the guy goes into the, he gets taken into the fairy hill and then he comes back like maybe 15 years later and his wife thinks he's walked out on him. Oh, oh the, the fairies of Merlin's crag. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That's yeah. it. Yeah, um, yeah, and he comes back and she's like, "Where the hell have you been?" But like, at least they're there. <laughs> but yes. hundred yeah. years. Yeah, hundred years. That's so. It's it's the same sort of story. The fiddlers of Tom Hurek up by Inverness, where there's two guys and they get paid like a cheap, no, sorry, I, I, like a huge rent, rent, a huge payment to come and play in some strange party and they go in and the same thing happens they play for hours they come out and everything's different so they're like we don't know any of these buildings everything's changed so they go and sit in the back of the church and as soon as the minister says the name of god they crumble into dust wow so it's a pretty similar story that you find lots and lots of different places where people end up in fairy hills and time passes differently like narnia basically Mm-hmm. But normally the fairies let them live at the end, the these trows making them disappear into dust afterwards. It must Thomas be human Rhyme. time catching up with them, though. Thomas exactly. even got promised prophecy out of it all. <laughs> In the, uh, one of the stories of the swans that we were chatting about earlier, would, uh, I think it was the one where Aoife turned the children into swans for 900 years. After they're finally turned back, it was like a prophecy where they hear a bell ring in a certain time very complicated stuff they turn back and immediately crumble into dust because their human bodies Aww. no longer have the magic that's keeping them alive yeah they suddenly age all that time at once and then they're done it's quite interesting though i wonder where that comes from this belief that like fairy time is different because you get the same with you know children being captured by fairies come back still kids and it's like 
20 years on? I was going to say, it could be a sort of mishmash of a few things. Like there's a lot of stories of Tir Na'og, the land of the young. You know, a bit like Neverland and Peter Pan, where you go away and just, you know, everything stands still. Um, and there's a lot of things like, what's his name, Thomas Reimer. There's sort of stories that he's still alive because even though he went into the fairy hill, the fairy kingdom for however many years, it's, you know, it, it keeps him alive. In fact, in, in The Fiddlers of Tom Nehurek, that version of the story, the old man that pays the fiddlers to go into the hill is supposedly Thomas Reimer. Because mm. oh, he cool. works for the fairies, essentially. He's like the lackey who goes out into the real world. Ooh, interesting. Cool, yeah. well, what was the last? The, what was the end of the Thomas Reimer main story? He, he disappeared into woods with two deer, didn't he? A stag and a door. Yeah, so he goes back and lives the rest of his life saying all these incredible prophecies. And then when he's an old man, somebody comes and says, oh, there's been these like white deer seen by the forest. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's the Queen of the Fairies. Call him yeah, back. Yeah. That's really cool. And he seems, so he kind of becomes like a, what, like a little kind of Hermes type messenger. Yeah. That's quite cool. Yeah. It, I mean, it could, when it all boils down to it, just be a way of people explaining folk disappearing. Mm-hmm. never coming back you know folk mm-hmm. are running away from home and abandoning their families or being abducted and that's the easy way of saying oh you know yeah i saw them by the fairy hill or the trow hill or you know they must have gone in there they'll be back in 50 years we'll all be dead we won't see them it's yeah. fine. i'm kind of wondering if it was like so a lot of these have you know that kind of moral or symbol or whatever i'm wondering if it has anything to do with like this quest for immortality that humans have apparently been on since they realized that mortality was a thing. They suddenly woke to it and were like, oh God. Yeah. But like, it's interesting because like they do achieve immortality of a kind, but then their loss is so grand. It's almost like telling people don't waste your time on trying to find fairies and trying to do this because you're going to, like in the end, it's not going to be worth it. You're going to come home and you'll have lost everything. Mm. I suppose if you think of it like, you know, at that time they all thought that these fairies were real. Like if they did hear music coming from a hill, it wasn't like we Billy practicing the violin. It was an actual fairy. Mm-hmm. So, like, if that's something that could be found, then immortality, therefore, was something that could be found. Yeah, that's really interesting reading of it. I was looking in the Lord of Scotland book. Uh, a guide to Scottish legends, to have a browse to see what I could find about music and musical stories and things. And of the first three I looked at, they were all to do with a bagpiper walking into a cavern or a cave or getting trapped in a cave or walking down a secret passageway, uh, which we've already covered about three times on this podcast. So I decided I'd probably not do one of them. But if you do want to hear one of them, Becca will put the links in the description. Haha, you've got to find them now. Um, so instead, I found one about somebody who's playing a chanter that's very short, or one that's a medium size about someone who doesn't play any instruments, but he is a trumpeter, as his occupation is just not an intrinsic part of the story. Does anyone have a preference for one of the other? No? Well, then I'll go for the short one, because the trumpeter one's really depressing. So instead, we're going... Lochfinlagan Islay, which is the place rather than the story. Um, and it's to do with uh, a story 
that was written by Lord Archibald Campbell, which sounds regal enough, in the 1880s. Um, and it's about how McDonald, about McDonald of the Isles and how he managed to get his chanter player, which is like the mini version of a bagpipe. It's all the key bits, but without the whole big bag. So one day there was a small boy and a big plowman uh, wandering along the streets. Well, they were probably doing some work, but for our sakes, they're wandering along the streets or along the path and they're really hungry, and the, especially the big plowman. And they say, no, I'd do anything for a bite to eat. I'd take it from a normal man if he threw it at me or magical beasties if they lured me in. And the boy's like, all right, that's fine. So they're what they keep wandering along and they, by chance, just not long after he said this, an old man pops out of his cottage and invites them in for tea and he's like, oh, I've got a big banquet as much as you'd like. And the big plowman's dead happy with this and the boy, being a bit more dubious, he has a little bite out of it and he's like, oh, that, that'll probably do for me. But the big plowman's like, ah, free food, I'll fill my belly. So he does and uh, the old man impressed with his, uh, his, his delight for the feast that he's put on decides to give to the big plowman a chanter to play. Uh, described in the story as a black chanter, this was maybe mahogany or ebony or a mysterious invention of this old man, whoever he may be. Um, but whatever it is, it makes the chanter really good because when the plowman who's never played it before picked it up, he found himself an expert. And in playing it, the, the old man was like, take it away with you, have a great time. And he plays all the journey with the little boy to wherever they're going. And en route, they're encountered by uh, the head of Clan MacDonald, who says, that's the best chanter plane I've ever heard. I'm going to need you to be my chanter. So the, the, the big plowman, you know, not making a lot of money in the trade, decides, you know, it must be a good job. We'll get to travel about a bit, have a good time, make some good money. So he does. Um, and he, he plays for a while as MacDonald's chanter. Um, until a young man called McCrimmon. I'm blaming this one here. Roisin, one of your... If you have a chanter in your house, I know where it's come from because that we're about to tell you. Uh, the big plowman... Uh, well, McCrimmon comes to the big plowman to learn about the music because he knows, oh, this is the best chanter player on the, of the Lord of the Isles. You know, it's just... He's the best guy there. He knows everything about it. Or rather, he knows how to play everything about it. Um, so... He comes round to visit him, but he's not in. So he's not having much luck to start off with. But he does spot the plowman's daughter, who uh, is not described in the story as a blonde, but we're going with that anyway, uh, just to be on theme for today. And in this beautiful blonde, he starts to, to court her a bit, you know, sweeten her up. Uh, and so she lets McCrown try the black chanter, which is apparently not a euphemism. Um, and when he found how well he could play in it, he begged her to let him borrow it for a few more days. And soon afterwards, MacDonald of the Isles went to Skye and McCrimmon went with him. So he ran off with MacDonald, stealing the plowman's job. And the young man never came back. And neither Tamara, the plowman's daughter, that he promised so dearly when, when persuading her to give him the chanter or returned to give the chanter back to the big plowman who'd played it so well and gifted it by the old man. And so the people of Islay say that it was how the music went from Islay to the Isle of Skye. So that's how the chanter music travelled across the Isles, was by one of the McCrimmons, one of her lot, nicking it and running off with MacDonald, who probably doesn't have much allegiance to his original chanter person. No. No. 
And I think that's it. Yep. Oh. And it says the rest is history. Or is it for more on the McCrimmon of Sky, see another page. So there might be more from McCrimmon later <laughs> on or on another podcast. I like that. Ooh. Like, that was not depressing compared to the others. It was a nice little origin story. Well, that's what I thought it might be nicer and, and shorter than the one where the woman dies a deadly death from frailty and beating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have extra exciting information for you. Oh. It's all coming full circle, right? So it was a McDonald who was wronged by the McCrimmon. Guess what my mum's last name is? <gasps> McDonald. Hey! So, so when the they McDonald's came together the in the end, together. yeah, because the, the McCrimmon runs off with the McDonald's oh, yeah. at the end. Oh, right. Descendants well, of the two. Yeah, I I don't know much about my um family history because you have to pay. Uh, but I do <laughs> know that the McCrimmons were supposed to be one of the most highly respected piping clans from the McClouds of Sky. Mm. So, I was going to say, so McCrimmons were obviously got no loyalty because they only left to McDonald's for the McClouds. <laughs> what can I say? We know our work. So there's a, there's a monument to the McCrimmons on Sky. Uh, I want to say Duntoom Castle. There's a thing about McCrimmon pipers being the hereditary pipers of the McLeods, even though Duntoom Castle was once a McLeod, then it was McDonald's. I don't know why it's there, but maybe it's because maybe this is why. Maybe this is the connection. Mm, yeah. Mm. Those thieving McCrimmons. <laughs> Excuse you, David. <laughs> Let's not turn this into a McCrimmon hate podcast. <laughs> yeah, come on. We're, we're pretty cool fellas. <laughs> None of my family are pipers, so we're kind of letting the side down. But uh, It is interesting, though, that pipers were really uh, revered. Well, not revered, but, you know, really well respected in Scotland. They were super important to clan life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the other stories in here that was somewhere that was one about a piper as well, that it was... It was to do with the kind of rank in the hierarchy. I think it was about when one of the King Charles's came and they had 80 pipers out and it was like one of them was respected as like the king of the pipers and everything like that. So King of the pipers. Yeah, and he was revered amongst the community and yeah. Title. So it always impresses me when you hear stories about um pipers uh in World War One who would like stand up on the trenches and just pipe into shell fire. Um and like come out live badasses they, they were amazing there's a story i think it's in world war one and it was basically everybody was too afraid to go over the top so this piper was he was the one he was like you've got to get people up there you've got to get them to go over so he started playing and he went over the top everybody followed him they did the whole charge thing whatever happened happened and he survived but he dropped his bagpipes at some point because he was also supposed to fight as well so you get up so far he dropped his bagpipes when everybody was retreating he was like can't leave them behind so he had to he ran back and he got shot while he was going back for his bagpipes oh, oh i thought that was gonna be a happy yeah. just to add more death and despair <laughs> that brings back the tone of the podcast yeah there we go <laughs> i do love in scotland any major city you go to well of the two there's <laughs> every corner yeah sorry thanks for that queenie <laughs> well you know like you walk down any street and you could just hear very faintly the sound of pipes um my mom has this fantastic story she was driving through glencoe which is absolutely the most some of the most stunning scenery i think you can find in the world and it just it feels very i don't know magical i guess 
but she was saying it was like a foggy day. It was a bit dreary and not very nice. And then all of a sudden you hear this piping and up on one of the hills, there was like a lone piper just piping into the glen. And she said that was the first time that she'd always hated bagpipes. That was the first time she was like, actually, they're kind of appropriate. So <laughs> that's a, I think that's a nice story. And there is something about like, we listened to uh, the Brave soundtrack driving through. <laughs> Listen to some bagpipe music. You might, you might have a different spin tell you what if you're into club music um there's a there's a braveheart club remix that they used to uh, this it's on youtube but they play it on radio tay um no this podcast cannot endorse braveheart (laughs) whatever you think of the film it's one of the best soundtracks ever okay the soundtrack and the one about the princess excellent fantastic the film (laughs) <laughs> you can hold. you've got a lot of emotion behind music so it's quite yeah. a, a good one to weave in and it's quite interesting because folklore lines itself so well to music like a lot of these ones as i mean a lot of the ones we did today have been songs so a lot of these stories would have been sung i love a song with a story mm-hmm. it just makes it all all the better by i don't know it's uh yeah a bit more meaning to it i guess mm-hmm. Definitely. Wasn't it a method to remember a tale as well? If it's set to music, you're more likely to remember the lyrics. Yeah. yeah. And then the, like, the most important central theme will be put in the chorus. Mm. It's the same as like a sea shanty, I suppose. Like There's the, the verse and then the repetitive bit that everyone comes back to. I think like drinking songs are the same. Yeah. yeah. Um, remind me, David, what was the um, chanter made out of again? We don't know. It just said black. So I just had a spe- wild speculation at a few different things. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a famous black chanter. Um, it's of, of Clan Hatton. I think it's McPherson's habit. Oh, okay. And it's probably in the McPherson Museum, actually, in Newtonmore. I don't, I don't know that for a fact, but that's like, there is a legendary black chanter that has several different origin myths. Mm. Um, but I imagine if you check that out, it might say what it's actually made of. I think it's supposed to have appeared during the Battle of the Clans, which was like a 30-on-30 30 30, like Royal Rumble um, <laughs> in Perth in like the 14th century. Wow. Did they have this advertised like around the Highlands? Battle of the Clans, sign up today. <laughs> yes, I think they actually did. They, had, they built a whole stand and everything so that the king could sit and watch it. Oh it's my really God. So one of my favourite stories, and it has this tiny little memorial on um, North Inch, I think, or South Inch, one of the inches in Perth. And it's just like, a t- it looks like a telephone um, box, like a um, like a networking box, whatever they're called. Mm-hmm. Like, we'd never know what it is, but anyway, but it's a really, really good story. But apparently this Black Chanter game, something to do with that. Uh-huh. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every week with more folkloric content from stories to analysis. The podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, a charity that tells the tales of the past with the technology of today. Our aim is to make the compiling and sharing of folktales accessible through digital streams. If you'd like to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, send us an email at info at folklorescotland.com. You can also check out all of our social media links in the show notes. If you would like to support the work we do, we have now launched a Ko-fi page where you can make a small contribution 
that will go a long way in helping us carry out the work we do. The link is in the show notes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.